Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, September 6th. Happy Labor Day to all of our friends out there, all of our listeners out there. I hope everyone's doing well on this holiday, getting back to uh, school just about. But I am joined here today, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing well. New background in place for anyone who can see on video. I technically moved into my new place six days ago, August 31st, got most of my stuff in, but haven't slept here yet. Tonight will actually be my first night because I've been cat sitting, but it's been a mostly decently productive week in terms of figuring the place out, um, perk of working for a moving company. Sometimes people just get rid of stuff. And literally the day I moved in, I noticed not a lot of storage options. I hadn't worked that day. I worked the next day. I'd show up at work and there's a ton of stuff already in the truck, which is unusual. And they're like, oh yeah, we packed all this stuff. We're just going to uh, go unpack it at the new place but they're getting rid of a couple of things and one of those things was a relatively nice bookshelf so I was able to toss that in the truck take it to my place after the job and that fixed a lot of storage problems so that a couple of new frying pans uh, the essentials bath mat doormat and getting all settled that's I think the longest I've ever taken to answer that question uh, your answer to how you're doing should be more interesting. I know you're at the cottage. Yeah, I, I can't say that it will be more interesting. It, I, I like getting little glimpses into your life here through the Zoom screen. Uh, spent the weekend myself at the cottage up near Tobermory. Um, a little bit chillier than it is here in, in London. Obviously, I'm sure it's a little bit chillier than it is there in Montreal. Um, but relaxing weekend didn't do much power was out for most of the day yesterday so really got the full cottage experience disconnecting from the world but I am back refreshed and ready to go because things are about to get going big time for us um for myself work and then coaching lots of sports are back now obviously not pro- just professional sports as we'll be talking about on today's pod but uh collegiate sports and so I know you're well aware of this as your job. I don't know when you start exactly, but it's obviously coming up and uh, I've got coaching duties starting tomorrow. Tryouts are tomorrow. So things are in place and, and things are going to get moving. And I'm just excited to be back in the grind, back in a rhythm. Um, and obviously we've got lots of sports coming up, starting with the NFL on Thursday. Um, so I'm just in a great mood right now. Yeah, it feels like on the precipice of things about to happen. Also was able to enjoy a pretty lazy, relaxing weekend, and it's time to stomp on the acceleration pedal heading into September at this point. So let's get after it. Yes, sir. Stepping on the accelerator, we are going to drive right into Football Fan Cave. Uh, not going to do my NFL preseason or uh, picks just yet. I'm going to first talk a little bit about World Cup qualifying something that has not been associated with the Canadian men's national soccer team in quite a long time. Uh, This is a historic opportunity for them, and they are in their first stretch of games. Uh, They have a third game against El Salvador coming up on Wednesday, but two draws in their first two results uh, against Honduras and the United States. The Honduras draw, a little disappointing, but the U.S. result, huge on the road, managed to tie it up in the 61st minute. Alfonso Davies was unbelievable in that game, and he set up Kyle Lahren, who has both goals for Canada so far in this qualifying octagonal uh, matchups. You could probably ask for a little better, but honestly, it's a great start. Uh, They're right where they need to be grouped in there. They're actually sitting in the third spot in the table, which is there are three automatic buys uh, into the World Cup. So right now they're in a great spot, need a win here against El Salvador uh, on Wednesday, but really proud of the boys. And, And this was an exciting young team that I was talking about a couple months ago. And they're starting to round into form here now. Just got to make sure that Davies is healthy for this next match and that he can maintain that health as he'll be playing a number of matches for Bayern Munich this season. Um, But this is a big opportunity in front of Canada. And U.S. looking fairly weak. Um, Panama 
is a team that's near the top of the table. That'll be an interesting matchup, but truly besides Mexico, all of these teams in this table, Canada can beat, and this may be the best shot they've ever had to make the world cup, obviously, except for 2026, when I believe they're getting a buy-in as one of the host countries, but really, really exciting times to be a Canadian soccer fan. Now we shall take a turn and go into my NFL season preview. I don't believe I got to do one of these last year. We started our podcast during the NFL season, um, and I tried to pick up on things as we went along. It's going to be pretty short. I don't have too much to say. There are a million networks and a million podcasts covering the National Football League. It's the largest professional sports league in North America. But what I can quickly do is run through my picks Um and then as we go along, I'll have a little bit more fantasy analysis, maybe some, some gambling analysis as that is becoming bigger and bigger here in Canada. But to start, I'll just rattle off my top seven AFC playoff teams here. I've got Kansas City, Buffalo, Baltimore, and Tennessee winning their respective divisions. Baltimore is the team that I feel least confidently about, um, which is why I have Cleveland sitting there as the five seed. And honestly, you could switch Baltimore-Cleveland out uh, if you want, Cleveland, I think, is the most talented team uh, in the AFC North, but Baltimore, uh, the more established team over the last couple of years. I then have the Los Angeles Chargers and the New England Patriots as teams jumping into the playoff picture who were not there last year. New England has all the pieces in place to turn around from their one down year they've had in the past 21 seasons, uh, but Mac Jones looks to be really solid, has been getting through his progressions quickly, and their defense, a bunch of guys coming back who took the year off last year and, and opted out of the COVID season. Their defense is, is looking really, really solid. Um, they're going to miss Stefan Gilmore for the first six games of the season, which is a big blow, but Bill Belichick's on a mission after Tom Brady went and won his seventh Super Bowl with the Bucks, and I think this New England team is going to be a playoff team for sure, so lock it in. On the NFC side, I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Of course, this is what, like the first time ever a Super Bowl winning team has returned every single one of its starters from the Super Bowl team. So sorry, Dallas Cowboys, who they're going to play on Thursday. This team is full continuity. They actually get a full preseason to work together. Tom Brady is just pure vibes right now. Um, and this team seemingly just took a smaller step forward and is actually better than they were when they won the Super Bowl. So how can they not be favored to run the NFC this year? Uh, I also have Green Bay, the LA Rams, and the Washington football team winning their respective divisions. Green Bay, um, I'm a little shaky on. The shakiest team there, though, is the Los Angeles Rams because the NFC West, once again, was last year, was the year before. Again, this year is the strongest division in football. Uh, I That's why I have the Seahawks and the 49ers also as playoff teams, three playoff teams from this one division. And they're all going to be in around 10, 11, 12 wins on the season here. Uh, it's going to be nice and tight, and it may come down to the final week of the season. Really looking forward to watching those teams play football. And then as my seventh playoff team, I decided to go with the New Orleans Saints. I think it's going to be really fun to see what Jameis Winston can do. He's had the LASIK surgery. He's in a better offense um, or at least a more creative offense. And if he showed out, if he shows out in the regular season, like he did in the preseason, I think the saints have a great shot to, to continue their reign um, in the NFC as a, as a yearly perennial playoff contender. And uh, they, they look to be in good shape to do that. They have a talented roster, a little bit shallow, uh, but they're definitely in a position to make the playoffs once again, They'll just be in tough starting the first couple of weeks on the road as Mercedes-Benz Stadium is not available to play in right now. Uh, quickly run through MVP candidates. I think, I don't really know who else stands out here, but out of the, like, I have five. And besides that, I, I really can't see anyone else grabbing it uh, from Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, or Russell Wilson. It's got to be one of those five. Um, unless one of the, like second year quarterbacks takes a huge jump or Aaron Donald just has like the best defensive season in history. Uh, we could also see a corner in there somewhat, but I just, no, it's, it's the quarterback is the position. Right. And so it's going to be one of those five guys. I think if I had to choose um, I'd go Patrick Mahomes just because now we're uh, we're two years removed from him winning MVP for the first time. And 
it's kind of surprising that he doesn't have two yet based on how successful he's been already early in his young career. And the Chiefs now losers in the Super Bowl. They're going to be back with a vengeance. And I think he's going to want to put up a ton of numbers in this 17-game season and set some records. Uh, so something to look out for for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I'm high on them this year just because a lot of what I do in the NFL is emotional hedging. I like to pick teams to have success money-wise and just pick-wise that are teams that actually don't want to do well in real life. <laughs> so that way, it's either way, it's a win-win for myself. Uh, there's my quick little NFL season preview. We kick off on Thursday. Cannot wait for that. And then a full slate of games on Sunday. Um, yeah, doesn't get any better than this. Max, I'll throw it over to you. Time for some combat corner. Yeah, uh, still slowing down a little on the recaps and previews. I thought I'd do something a little more fun on this one. Um, because I haven't been as into the cards lately as at some points where I'm like every card I'm watching entirely bottom to top. So I tried to think about the fights that got me most excited. Um, these aren't necessarily the most talented high level fights you can put on like pound for pound across the UFC. Any bad blood rivalry or extra reasons storylines give boosts to these matchups so there are some excellent fighters in here that are kind of snubs in the sense that they're amazing fighters but i'm more interested in watching fighters who are evidently worse than them fight for either entertainment or storyline reasons so with that preamble said maybe the fight that it's most needed for uh, number five on my list Jorge Masvidal versus Leon Edwards at welterweight. These definitely two of the top five, top 10, depending where you rank Masvidal after that latest Usman knockout, um, but not so far removed from that. Just violent performance against Diaz that was kind of the permanent star-making match where he took all the hype he had generated off the Asker knockout and solidified it. Usman just kind of a horrible stylistic matchup for him in that he always has to worry about getting taken down, held against the cage. You've got to think against a more stand-up, consistent fighter. Leon Edwards does like the clinch, but he doesn't have that same strength as Masvidal. We'd see Masvidal at his striking best, but against a chess master of an opponent, Leon Edwards, who just no one has an easy time offensively against. He's really hard to get off. And watching that chess master style attacking Masvidal, seeing if it can slow him down or if Masvidal can get through as Diaz did, but earlier, more consistently, and of course, following it up. Those are all the stylistic reasons this would be a really fun matchup. Uh, but that's probably not enough to justify it in the top five. What does is that backstage confrontation they had after UFC London, after Masvidal had knocked out Till, was getting interviewed. Edwards walked up to talk shit, and Masvidal literally dropped him with a three-piece of Minnesota. Still not quite clear on how he doesn't have an arrest warrant out for him in the UK. I'm not sure if they could host it there, but he's made it this far okay not having returned in there. So I, I'm sure that the or the uh, repercussions of that will not be handled by the law at this point. But the UFC has shown in the Khabib Connor matchup that they're totally willing to use that kind of backstage footage. So you know the build-up for it would be fun. The bad blood would make a really fun press conference. And that heightens all the stylistic fun of that matchup and puts it in at number five for me. At number four, two fighters whose star had has also fallen a bit over the past couple of years. Four years ago, this would have 100% been the number one on this list, but John Jones versus Stipe Miocic. John Jones, kind of in limbo zone, the twilight zone right now. We're not really too sure what's going on. He's been over a year since he said he was moving to heavyweight. So you've got to think the bulk and the muscle based on his own description of how he plans his heavyweight move puts him out of light heavyweight. So he needs a heavyweight matchup next. Ngannou Gain is going to be the next heavyweight fight. 
if John Jones and Ganyu was going to happen, it would have happened already. I think John Jones needs another heavyweight opponent, and I think Stipe is an amazing one for him at that. Because Stipe has all the things that you wonder about when you see John Jones's fights at light heavyweight. When he fights bigger guys, he doesn't hasn't looked as effortless for him. It's been a lot more of a struggle when he can't use that reach advantage. And Stipe has that frame, not to mention probably being more skilled than anyone John Jones has fought. I mean, he beat DC twice. We saw how much DC tested John and DC's five foot ten, five foot eleven. The bigger Stipe with better striking timing uh, would be a really entertaining matchup at heavyweight. Age probably has the least amount of detriment on fighters' longevity. So despite these two guys being near the twilight stages of their career, not sure what else is held for Stipe at heavyweight. This would be an awesome fight. I'm saying this 100% as a Stipe fan, hoping you could at least see him go out putting like the first real L on John Jones. Um, but I think that's would be a phenomenal fight and easily ranks number four. Number three, this, I think, most likely in all the other fights I'm going to describe, actually, I think have are going to be made or have been made. So less suspense and credit to UFC matchmakers, I guess. But at number three, I've got Stylebender versus Whitaker 2, the rematch. I had talked in the last pod or one before that about how these instant rematches deprive the fight of some storylines that can be really entertaining. And I think Stylebender Whitaker 2 has all of that. Mostly looking at Robert Whitaker, but you can't ask much more from Stylebender of what he's done at middleweight since taking the belt from Whitaker has been pretty near flawless defending it. Um, the Romero performance, the only one that's really a blip. But after that, taking out Costa and Vittori, especially Costa with all the hype that was on Costa at that time, uh, Vittoria, very similar fight, but he's shown at middleweight that he's the best right now. And there's a big question mark we have to put on anyone who's challenging him, especially Whitaker, who's already beat. But you look at Stylebender's one loss, a loss to Jan Blahovic, and it was the striking technique of Jan that made that fight a win for him. It was the ability to check the leg kicks, to fight it at his pace. Uh, his power was a huge part in that, slowing it down to a speed where he could actually outround uh, Stylebender. And of course, his size a huge part in holding him down those last two rounds. But the technicality, virtuosoness of that performance from Blahovic seems like a state Whitaker's been in his last three fights. You look at the Darren Till fight, the Cannoneer fight, and then the Gaslam fight, and he's been near perfect in all of them, other than getting dropped by Till, which I think happened in the very first round. So since then, four, seven, 12 rounds of near perfection from him, going against guys like Cannoneer and Gaslam, who have that real one-punch knockout power. Um, the jab against Gaslam was such money. The combo head kick against Cannoneer, the wrestling he put on, Gaslam, which uh, so another thing Lahovich exposed or showed against Stylebender was you have to mix up the striking to the wrestling to land the takedown on him. And Whitaker, such a phenomenal athlete and naturally gifted striker who's really put in the work grappling, has that the athleticism to merge those two together. So I think everything we've seen from Whitaker is exactly what you would have asked for coming off that loss. and gives him the tools to handle that rematch. So I'm really excited for it. I'll try to move a bit quicker here. I, this segment dragged me on a little longer than I thought. Uh, number two on the list, the heavy, another fight that is going to happen for the heavyweight belt, Francis Ngannou versus Ciro Gan. Francis Ngannou, the hype around him, you could understand if I do about the sport right now for the first time. After that loss to Stipe, after that disastrous mental blockade against Derek Lewis, he goes, wins four fights in like a cumulative less than four minutes, gets his rematch against Stipe. It looks absolutely perfect. The patience, the power, the technique to make the fight happen where he wants to, the explosiveness, uh, he's done it all and looks like such a formidable juggernaut. 
coming right off after that Stipe fight, I'm not sure I could have expected anyone to beat him in the next three years at heavyweight. But lo and behold, just a few months later, Ciro Gone with two wins has kind of emerged in my head as the favorite to do that. Um, the he just fights like no other heavyweight, and it's the style you'd need to be a guy like Ngani. Such a technical fighter, so impossible to hit. You look at the first performance Stipe had against Ngannou that was so beautiful, and the improvements Ngannou made means that kind of defensive, evasive style is going to have to be a lot more technically implemented. Gan doesn't have the wrestling Stipe did, but no one's been able to hit him yet. Like, I don't think anyone's landed anything really clean on him his entire UFC career. He's gone up against Tanner Bozer, Junior Dos Santos, Alexander Volkov, all power punchers with a lot of knockouts in the division. And none of them have landed anything clean on him. I think I didn't mention John Zinger Rosenstrike in there. So after going up against four of those guys, it's a huge question if Ngannou can land and... That's kind of the entire match boiled down to one thing. Can the really explosive, terrifying power puncher land on the impossibly skilled, evasive, karate, Muay Thai heavyweight? Um, that's going to be an amazing heavyweight fight. Can't wait for it. But number one's got to go to what I always call the deepest division, which after the era of the Eagle, Khabib Nurmagomedov retired. We have a new champion in Charles Oliveira who took home the belt after beating Michael Chandler. But it was a matchup where you could say that neither guy was really the guaranteed bona fide number one in the division at the time. That honor had to go to Dustin Poirier after the consistent work he put in with just higher level performances over a longer period of time than Oliveira had. Um, at the top of the wrist list, the crystallized diamond, as opposed to the meteoric Oliveira. Uh, Dustin won his money fight with Connor, so no shame that fight being made between Oliveira and Chandler. Mm -hmm. Oliveira gets it, which is awesome because he's just been so hot in the UFC for so long on that meteoric rise, like I said. And now he's going to fight Dustin Poirier, two guys who are, by strength of schedule, the best in the division for sure looking to take the award of the number one belt in the UFC, in my opinion. I've added kind of an asterisk to this, and that's Islam Makashev, because this is a guy where we really don't know how good he is. He could be better than either of those guys, and we just haven't seen it proven against the top of the division yet. Just looking at the career Khabib had, uh, it's clear he could have been champion for quite a few more years than he was if he had been awarded that title shot earlier. So I don't quite feel comfortable saying the throne has been settled until it's been the belt has been offered to each of those three. And when the dust clears between that three, some number one will be clear. Any of those three fighting is the number one fight you can make for me in the UFC right now. Whew. All right. Agree, disagree. Feel free to let me know. Uh, I'm sticking with those picks, though. Need a little bit of a mental reset here, so we'll be right back after this. And we are back, Sports Next Door, here in Basketball Storylines. And we're going to kick it off with continuation of a current story that just continues to move along. And I my personal opinion, it will keep going into the season, uh, will not be resolved before the season starts. Ben Simmons saying that he will not return to Philadelphia, will not participate in training camp uh, unless, uh, well, not unless, until he is traded. He no longer wants to play with the 76ers. Um, fans turning on him very quickly already have turned on him, um, but yet still think they deserve, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, four first-round picks, basically what James Harden, Houston Rockets received plus more. Um, hard to value a guy that you want out of town so badly. And Ben's not making it any easier on Daryl Morey, saying that he only wants to go to the three Cali California teams. There are four California teams. Um, poor Sacramento. I don't think the Kings are going to be in a hurry to correct him, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well... They're the team that's most 
I don't know. They're the team that has a decent shot at getting him. There are a bunch of like suitors there. Obvious, the obvious ones are there, right? Your Washington, your Portland, your Golden State. Those are the three that everyone wants to happen. But I feel like those are not the three most likely to happen. That's what Philly wants. But is that what the other teams want? I think we could see something like a Cleveland or an Oklahoma City or a Sacramento being teams that are actually more um, are higher up with that list in, po- in terms of possibility of having the assets to make the move. It's just not what Philly wants. And so sitting here looking at it, my take is that this isn't going to get resolved before the season starts. Um, Philly has four years, essentially to work with Simmons and figure out what they want here. So if you're Philadelphia, basically you got to hope that Doc Rivers can talk him down. You get him back in training camp, or at least the season starts. This team is going to be good. They just have too much talent. They've been a perennial second round playoff team and have had a couple near misses from going even deeper than that. So once Ben Simmons is back out on the court, because you know, he's going to want to play. This team is going to win, and that's going to help solve a lot of the issues happening right now. Uh, so I think it could be near trade deadline or even next offseason when we see him moved. If you're Philly, you want to run it back. Uh, you're probably looking elsewhere to find guys to pair with Simmons and Embiid, maybe a bit more of a perimeter presence. Uh, it's tough. Like It's tough when it's already become fractured like this, but you can't just sell low on a guy who has made all NBA teams. Right. And even though his stock is low, Philly, Philly still believes that he's valuable and Daryl Morey is going to swing for the fences and try and make the best move possible for his team. And that's why I don't see it getting done. So if you're Philly, you just got to hope that he comes back, they start winning and things get resolved to a point that can be salvaged. Um, He's not going to play for this team long-term but enough so that they can win, build his value up, and then look for a situation that works for all parties. It's definitely in both parties' best interest, the situation you've described, because I think with the way the second round ended for the 76ers, with the reports about Simmons not being interested in player development with the 76ers, um, what he's doing right now, just all really bad looks that if Philadelphia is trying to swing for the fences on a trade um other teams need to believe they're getting something valuable back and the mentality you like just naturally assume that simmons has between the chain of events i've described uh, that's a really tough sell you'd either have to be incredibly incredibly confident in your player development program um, to a level i can't really imagine or have a team system that is completely able to camouflage all of the drawbacks in Simmons playing style. And I don't know if that really exists too much in the modern NBA, the way shooting is valued and the ability to space the floor or be sure you're going to like hammer Simmons ego down to play small forward or something. But even if he goes and plays like he'd still have to kind of address that problem and show there's some versatility to his playing style. And I, I don't know what he's done this off season. Uh, the rumors reports I've heard are that he went and trained with like his brother-in-law or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like, even if he shows up with the 76ers plays with them and the 76ers win a bunch of games reminiscent of last season, all best case scenario, I would say, do you think he like shows the leaps in his playing style that would like entice a team to take that risk? Because if he, it looks like he's the same player as last year, I think his value still remains way below what the 76ers are asking. I heard this on another pod- podcast. It's, it's reached a point where if you're in the camp that you want Ben Simmons and you believe in what he can be, you're going to stay there no matter what happens. And if you're out on Ben Simmons, you're out. Nothing this offseason has changed either of those perspectives um, because I don't believe he's worked on anything anymore. And so the camp that believes he can get better is not looking to him for him to go and, and work by himself and figure it out. They believe that they can bring him into their program and get the best out of him. And so who knows what those teams are that believe they can bring him in and get the best out of him. Um, 
but it would be fascinating to see if one of those teams ends up making a move this season. I just think it, 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 everyone's waiting for the price to go down and it's not going to go down for a while. And when the team starts winning, that's when you'll see teams start to get creative making moves. Um, the one other team that was connected to him for a bit was Minnesota. They just don't have the assets that Philly wants, but if there's a three team involved again, like Cleveland, uh, OKC, Sacramento are other teams that could possibly be involved in a three-team trade like that as well. Um, and, and there's other like surprise suitors out there, who knows, uh, that are looking to bring Simmons in. He has to be the focal point, or that's what he's looking to be. I just don't know if he'll ever be the guy to run a team when he lacks that killer instinct. So <laughs> I don't think he's improved too much, but there are people who love what he is right now, right now. Like right now, he's a first team all defense and he hangs around kind of the top 25 players in the league when he's locked in and when he's being aggressive um but the lack of shooting really hurts teams come playoff time so who knows where he's gonna end up uh i'm just looking forward to seeing how that's gonna shake out this is the thing we're talking about right hard knocks for the nba i would love to see philly's training camp when it <laughs> when it starts in a couple of weeks yeah and and Rivers are the two guys I remember like right after the end of that game seven, both saying kind of detrimental things. Uh, I think we had in our show notes for an episode that didn't happen about how Embiid kind of tweeted about Simmons, like, I got your back. These fans are too harsh. Uh, so some of the groundwork for that. Yeah. Been late, fresh, but... fresh wounds versus time. He's really changed his take now that he knows he needs him back. Yeah. And I think it also spoke to the kind of person Embiid was. He said something like, I should have been better that game. I could have carried the team more. Like, I, he, I he did fully just throw him under the bus as well, though. It, yeah, it's. but I felt like he had the team on his back that whole series. So for him to be like, no, the problem was I wasn't putting up 50 points and like 18 rebounds a night. That's like how we win playoff series. Uh, who knows? Something to look for next season. He was having that Embiid. MVP pace caliber season before his injury. A team with multiple MVP caliber players that would also be a fun NBA hard knocks team to follow is the Brooklyn Nets. And they have made some more moves uh, this past weekend, picking up Paul Millsap uh, and LaMarcus Aldridge getting medically cleared will return uh, on a one-year deal with the Brooklyn Nets. This team is ridiculously stacked um, already a bit of a spoiler for my picks, but I am all in on this Brooklyn team. The talent is through the roof. Uh, you've got three all NBA caliber players uh, supplemented by Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, Paul Millsap, Joe Harris, Patty Mills, Bruce Bowen, Nicholas Claxton, uh, all guys that fit in extremely well to what the Nets are trying to do. And just all guys that get two, three times better when you're playing on the floor with KD, Harden, and Kyrie. It's it's simply ridiculous, and I don't think there's going to be a team that can get anywhere close to, to slowing these guys down if they stay healthy, and that's a big if. But LaMarcus Aldridge, Paul Millsap, two guys you could bring in. Millsap will probably fill that Jeff Green role, and then Aldridge will be a similar role to what he was looking like last year, where if one of those guys is injured, He's a guy who could come in and play six minutes in a night, say, but it's six minutes in one quarter where he puts up 12, 14 points and teams have to make those necessary judgments to stop him. And then you sub him out, bring someone else in, and then they have to reel and readjust. And he's just a different look that you don't see anymore in today's game. And so you could, you could abuse some smaller fours by getting him on the floor uh, and, and getting him in a pick and roll or pick and pop situation with any one of these great playmakers. Moving along, uh, Clint Capella getting a nice extension with the Atlanta Hawks had to be done. Keeps him ahead of Okongwu in the depth chart, but he was really, really great for this team on both ends of the floor as a rim protector, as a rim runner. Great chemistry with Trey. Uh, kind of the going rate for centers right now, and, and it's a contract again. All these contracts seem huge for players, but that's kind of what you have to do nowadays in order to fit salaries together to make trades. Um, and I think Atlanta is really talented. They're going to be right back in the thick of the playoff hunt again next season. And then uh, we'll finish up with another center uh, link to Brooklyn. Those have been the two themes so far through this section. Uh, DeAndre Jordan. 
and four second-round picks head to the Detroit Pistons for Jaleel Okafor and Sekou Dumbuya. Um, DeAndre Jordan immediately gets bought out and signs with the Los Angeles Lakers. So they only have one roster spot yet, but I, I think LA now has seven of the top 10 oldest players in the NBA on their team. Um, it's, it's the LA retirement home, um, but hey, they, they bring them in uh, on a minimum deal. That's fine. It, he's overvalued for a minimum player. Again, another one of those guys like a Dwight Howard, like a JaVale McGee, where they could run him starting sometimes alongside AD just for his length um, to protect the rim a little bit, maybe catch a couple lobs, but don't expect him to do much more of that. He's really slowed down the last couple of years, not the same athletic freak that he once was. Uh, for Detroit, this was a bigger piece for me. I had no idea what they're doing. Giving up on Sekou Dumboya, who was like their best chance at a prospect just two years ago when they had nothing except him obviously he hasn't progressed they wanted so they're off of him picking up four second round picks just doesn't seem like that great of a, a pickup for them um they get off of okafor as well yeah i did just i didn't really get it for them they they get a guy and immediately buy him out so they just wanted the the four draft picks are going to be around 58 to 60 um, in the draft over the next couple of years. So I just, I really didn't get it from them, but uh, they hopefully have a bigger plan then. They're they're going motorcade all the way. And I guess Dumboya just didn't fit in with their team at this point anymore with Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, um, and Kelly Olynyk and some of those other power forwards that they brought in. Yeah, they could be banking on Annette's collapse some point, 365 days from now, and maybe a couple of those picks are in the thirties. And at that point you have a better idea of what your team's starting to shape up and need with Cunningham. And if you're super confident in your scouting, but that's so many ifs that it's hard to imagine that's the game plan. Yeah. They just gave up. This is like a Caboclo type situation where two years away from being two years away. And then he ended up actually going backwards in his progression, never actually making it to what they expected. That's it for basketball. We'll jump into talking hockey and the meme that we were talking about last week resolved itself in frightening fashion. Yasperi um, Kokitniemi, the offer sheet submitted by the Carolina Hurricanes was not matched by the Montreal Canadiens. It has been a while since an offer sheet has not been matched, uh, especially for a guy drafted third overall. Um, it was a big number for one year, but Carolina picks up this guy who could be the finishing piece on an absolutely loaded offensive core. Uh, he's going to play either third or fourth line on this team and be way overpaid for it. Um, if you're a Canes fan, you're a little bit upset that they could afford to pull off this uh, meme and not pay Dougie Hamilton or uh, Nadelkovich, but that's what you have. And so you guys share them on and Montreal who seemed to be a huge loser from this and looked very handcuffed immediately turned around with these picks that they got from the offer sheet and acquired Christian Dvorak from the Arizona coyotes, an incredible move by Mark Bergevin. Um, really, really sticky situation that turned out very nicely for them. I think Dvorak is a little bit further along in, Co in his development than Coquette Niemi, a little bit older, fits in better with the Canadians timeline. Um, solid second line player uh for them and they're really missing guys like him now that Dano and Koke and Miami are now gone um Montreal fans talking about Kenyemi as if he was a Selkie candidate now that he's gone he's barely a third line center funny how things change uh yes Barry's only 20 years old I think he's gonna get really, really solid as a player, um, probably will end up around Dvorak's level. So Montreal essentially trading uh, the future for now and, and maybe a little bit better of a stomachable contract that they can control. So I like the move uh, for Montreal. And yeah, they really dug themselves out of a hole there, but they do lose two big pieces of their uh, Stanley Cup finals team. Yeah, that team felt like it had no real first or fourth line just every line went on and did its role and losing two pieces from that big uh bergevin just not been afraid to 
dip into his ink as much as he needs to. I feel like has been the signature of the past year and a bit for him. Uh, staying busy this offseason, just like the last one. And so far, none of his moves have really been busts and have worked out pretty well for them. Uh, the only thing I really wanted to highlight on the Hurricanes end, uh, you alluded to the really scary forward pool they have. That's going to be awesome to check out this coming season. But the only thing about uh, Kokanyemi versus Hamilton in terms of the deals seems to be length. I'm really curious because one year at six point something million, I don't know what they're banking on being able to do after that. Uh, if they he has an average season and they're able to lock him up long-term for something around that 6 million mark. Cause I don't think they can go lower than it now that they've uh, locked him in on that. Just his arbitration. So right. they can actually lock him in on a much lower salary, okay. which but what if, many, that's what people have been floating. But if he goes to arbitration or next year, they have to offer him a minimum. Uh, yeah. His like qualifying offer is, is 6.1. Yeah, so, but that's the only real, like, substantial difference I can see between him and picking up Hamilton is they controlled the length of this. So if they have some imminent cap concerns or plans, that'll be something to keep an eye out for there. But, yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about some international hockey now. Yes. And the Canadian woman taking home the gold for the first time since 2012 in the uh, IIHF World Championships. And guess who scored another clutch goal? I think this is her third gold medal winning goal of, of her career. Marie-Philippe Poulain with an absolute heater went bar down. Um, game continued because no one knew that it went in and 30 seconds later the horn goes off confirming it was a goal and then the Canadians rushed the ice it was an odd way for them to find out that they had won she knew from when she shot it she's just an absolute stud and I wanted to give them a shout out because it was an awesome tournament for them uh they really showed the Americans what's up and uh Poulain man she's just a heartbreaker a crusher uh absolute ice water in her veins at all times she is a white walker like so many superlatives that you could apply she's just so cold man it's pretty nuts what she's accomplished yeah congratulations ladies got to catch the second and third of that at a bar it was a great game yeah we will move on uh to another international competition the olympics 2022 the nhl has confirmed that their players will be able to attend this will be the first time since 2014 we missed 2018 we are so fired up for this team um and chris johnson uh of sportsnet.ca released his projections for the team i wanted to go quickly through it max and, and see what your thoughts were on the team a first line of nathan mckinnon connor mcdavid mitchell marner no surprise there that is vomit inducing how nasty that is uh Patrice Bergeron, Sidney Crosby, uh, Marshan, Brad Marshan, um, obviously a, a staple line that we have seen for quite a few years in international competition. Uh, you know that they're going to produce at a high level, and this could be their last run together. So looking for great things out of that line. Uh, Jonathan Huberto, Braden Point, Mark Stone, all first-line studs on their respective teams. Uh, Braden Point really emerging as an incredible young center. Uh, Mark Stone, great two-way player, and, and Jonathan Huberto is a slick playmaker. I, I love this line fitting together as well. And then a fourth line, there were some questions here. It's a little bit on the older side. Uh, Couturier, great two-way player with some international experience. And then he's got Tavares and Stamkos, the broken leg twins, uh, on either side of him as centers playing the wings. Um my thoughts here is, is Tavares might be a little bit slow foot at this point in his career to play the wing. He could be your extra center. Um, always good to have some center depth. I, I do see a one of Shifley, Barzal, Taylor Hall, or even a Claude Giroux sneaking in there over Tavares, even a Ryan O'Reilly. I, I would see O'Reilly playing center more though, uh, if he gets onto this team, but just an absolutely stacked deep 
group of players to choose from in the forward core. Also not mentioned here, Tyler Sagan, Jordy Ben, Logan Couture, Bo Horvat, um, and the list goes on and on. It's it's truly a, a stacked group of forwards to choose from and lots of skill and mix between young and old. Yeah, we've still got some time to see how uh, injuries shape out and recoveries from injuries shape out. Uh, you mentioned a couple of the older. I, I really hope Stamkos gets to attend this Olympics, man. It was heartbreaking not being able to have him in Sochi. Do you know if this one off the top here, is it China? Yes, Beijing. I don't know if these should happen. Um, <laughs> if they did, that would be international ice then, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that leading to, I think I'd want a skater like Barzal or Shifley over Tavares for sure. Um, I'd, as a Dallas fan, I'd love to see Sagan and Ben kind of a package deal with their chemistry attend, but that would they'd need a big bounce back season. Um, so haven't seen Sagan play in a while. Reminiscent of our last NHL Olympic squad, though, I think this uh, team's biggest strength might still be defense, especially on that Olympic wide ice. It's it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because in the projections for this roster, only one player remains from the 2014 Olympic team, and that's Alex Petrangelo here on the first D pair with Shea Theodore. Uh, and then as well, the second pair being going really young here with Thomas Shabbat from the Senators and Kale McCarr, the absolute stud from the Colorado Avalanche. And then a third pairing of Morgan Riley and Dougie Hamilton. Um, that's a fantastic third pair. Some people questioning whether Riley gets in there over the likes of Drew Doughty, Brent Burns, Mark Edward Vlasic, Jake Muzzin, Colton Pareko, Samuel Girard, Mark Giordano, and Josh Morrissey. <laughs> Endless guys to choose from there as well. Um, and then Bowen Byram, right? We remember him from the junior championships just uh, a couple months ago where he lit it up and you can see him really push to make this roster if he shows out for Colorado early in this uh, NHL season. Yeah, I, it was so stacked last time around 2014. Uh, although some of those guys mentioned in the possible reserve list, all unfortunately in the twilight of their careers, but like the mantle more than being adequately taken over by the next generation of young Canadian blue liners. Uh, having Makar especially would be hype if well will be hype if um Byram could step it up by then like wow that and then that would be like mint for even the 2026 after that um we got to see a lot of Riley and Brody on the same line at the same time and Brody outplaying Riley for vast stretches of the season. So him, another name, I wouldn't look past depending how the next two seasons go. The thing I'm most excited about for this team before we get to the goaltenders, uh, which I forgot to mention, is just watching McDavid and Nathan McKinnon play on the same line. Probably the, probably the two best players now in the NHL, or at least the two most valuable players in the NHL at this point. Um, and McDavid, we haven't seen since the World Cup of Hockey in 2016 when he was on Team North America. It really has been a long time, and I cannot wait to see him absolutely fly past everyone out there on the open ice. He'll be untouchable. <laughs> it's going to be so unreal to watch him fly out there with McKinnon and Marner, uh, even nope. if you throw like a, a point or a stone or a Huberto with those guys that you put Literally, you could put me on that line, and those guys will just bang pucks in. It's nuts. And I hope him and Crosby get to share some power play time or something. That would yes, just like two of the best minds in hockey ever. Yeah, sharing the ice at the same time in the Canadian jersey, like please. <laughs> yeah, could be could be Sid's last Olympic run, but yeah, we shall. What see. a great way to. I mean, the mantle's been handed over for many years now, but like a formal. Yes. Changing of the guard. Yes. Last spot here. Uh, normally a staple for this Canadian team. I actually have some question marks. Uh, Carey Price, Jordan Binnington, and Mackenzie Blackwood were the three Canadian goalies listed. Carey Price obviously 
getting up there with some injuries. You wonder uh, if he'll be ready to go in time for this Olympic run. Uh, Jordan Bennington obviously won the Stanley Cup with the Blues in 2019, but has not looked as steady since. And then you're relying on some really young goaltenders back there in Mackenzie Blackwood. And of course, Carter Hart was maybe perhaps deemed the next one a little bit too early, but normally a position where you're three deep um, with a bunch of different options. And, and it looks a little bit more hazy as a lot of the top goaltending talent has turned international in the last couple of seasons. So this would be the point of worry for me, which is not great because goaltending is uber important, but you think with such a stout group of forwards and defenders, the goaltenders just have to really play positionally and, and give you one or two good saves in, in a game and, and, the rest of the team can do the rest, but that is that is my point where I would like to see a little bit of progression, especially from these younger guys early on this season. Yeah, I think Price probably the floor of what our goaltending could be. Um, his value right now is probably as high as it ever will be in the rest of his career, and it's a question of how much can he prevent that from falling over the next couple of years. And then the field, I think, is there for someone else to grab a hold of the reins and one run with them to emerge. Carter Hart, probably the front runner of a dark horse, if that's a term. But yeah, I, I think with this group of forwards and defense, you don't have to be much better than average to pull off a gold medal in the goaltending department. Although I say that with like the nightmares of Ryan Miller ever potentially haunting my dreams. Yeah, it is. It is going to be so much fun. Cannot wait. Believe it or not, really like only five months away from this Olympic tournament. So it's going to be here before we know it. Cannot wait. Moving on into the U.S. Open tennis talk. Um We've had some some relative success overall from Canadians in this tournament. It's been a great um, yeah. US Open for Canadians, like full stop. Yeah. Max, I'll let you take it away. Um, yeah, the worst or most disappointing story, a third round appearance from Shapovalov before he fell to the unranked Harris. But for our top two Canadians on each side. That is the minimum of what's been achieved this tournament. On the women's side, Leila Annie Fernandez taking out last year's winner, Naomi Osaka in the third round, and then winning the fourth round as well for her first ever Grand Slam quarterfinals appearance. Congratulations to her. Bianca Andreescu will look to join her in the quarterfinals. Um, it's nine o'clock now, so that match should just be starting up. Um, maybe we'll have an update added on to that um, by the time this pod goes up. And then on the men's side, right now, as I watch Novak Djokovic play Brooksby for a quarterfinal appearance, um, as I did last night watching tennis, watching Felix Ojeh Aliassime also book his ticket to the quarterfinals with a win against Francis Tiafo, who's had two big upsets this year as an unranked player. First, taking out Stefano Sissipas in uh, Wimbledon in the first round. And then in the match preceding the fourth round matchup with OJ Alassim, he took out Rublev, the uh, Cincy Open finalist, um, in I think five sets heading into that matchup against OJ Alassim. So he's been playing some really fantastic tennis. I'm sure we'll see a number next to his name sooner rather than later. Uh, And he put the pressure on Felix early, um, breaking him in the first game of the match. The rest of the set took a really funny turn where after Felix got broken, he looked to get right back and every game uh, TFO was serving. He managed to find an opportunity for break points and succeeded on none of them. Proceeded to serve out his game and hold pretty effortlessly, but still down that break. That went all the way into TFO being up 5 4, where Francis finally pulled out his serving and pulled away without any break points. After the first set, Felix was 0 for 8, TFO 1 for 2 on the break point. So a bit of a disappointing one for Felix. Going into that second set, 
uh, a lot of momentum with TFO after that strong service game, and he kept it going. Oje Alassim had to dig a little in his service games, um, neck and neck. He put the pressure on later into that set uh, and got two breaks to pull out that one really quick. And then from there, the consistency emerged. Uh, you, double faults were not his friend early in that match. They came to visit a couple times, but he managed to dig himself out of them. The forehand got a lot more consistent and he eventually just elevated his game consistently above TFO. He had shown flashes of it early in the match, but then the unforced errors were really holding him back from taking advantage of some of the opportunities he was creating for himself. Um, Francis played a really excellent clean game, not a lot of unforced errors for him. He made Felix earn every point, which for the streaky players can be the hardest thing to do. Uh, so a tough challenge for Felix that he passed uh, this will not be his first Grand Slam quarters. He was there at Wimbledon. He's been there, I think, at the US or Australian as well. Uh, but he probably has the best chance he's had to make semis going up against the Carlos Alcaraz, who's coming off an upset of Stefano Sissipas in the third round and then a fourth round win. Um, definitely a dark horse. If he wins and ends up in the semis, that would be huge for him. But Felix, probably, hopefully, the favorite. And we might be looking at back-to-back -back Grand Slam semis appearances by Canadians in the ATP Tour, which is awesome. So congratulations to all the Canadians. Uh, as I mentioned in the quarters, Djokovic playing right now against Brooksby. Uh, he had some early trouble going down 6-1 in the first set. Um, mid trouble in the second set after breaking he got broken managed to break back and take it 6-3 he's up one nothing right now in the first third set excuse me serving so looks to be turning the corner and building his momentum right now he's had a fairly clean u.s open so far uh, as has daniel medvedev who's passed on to the quarters and i think i can't remember who he's playing but he will play the winner of the Felix Alcaraz matchup. And then Alexander Zverev, the player to watch this tournament coming off his Olympic gold and since he opened, uh, I, he must be on like a 15 match win streak at this point as he also heads into the quarters or semis. Quarters, I think uh, he took a win over Yannick Sinner today, the Italian who also won his first uh, I think it was an ATP 500 hardcore event earlier in this month. So the competition coming to a head with everything we love. Djokovic playing well. Looks like he's going to play Zverev. We've got a Canadian in there and Medvedev, the number two seed up there as well. Some fantastic tennis going on and really looking forward to telling everyone on the pod as this tournament comes to a head next week. All right. Absolutely. Want to wrap things up? A couple of shout outs. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, who I wrote off, have really turned things around. Uh, this team, <laughs> they just keep finding ways to make this season fun at the very least. And you got to love that. Um, a huge 8 nothing win against the New York Yankees today to kick off the biggest series of their entire season. They are now only three games back of the Yankees for a wild card spot with three more games coming up against them uh, through this week. Huge, huge, huge series. Uh, they've won a couple in a row now. They're really growing momentum. They've been getting fabulous pitching to go along with the hitters. And if they can just keep things going now, combining these things together, they have a really great shot of at least making the playoffs. And, and that's what this team wanted at the beginning of the season. Just hoping that Springer can stay healthy and that the bullpen can get shored up by some of the guys coming back, most notably Ryan Barucki and uh, Julian Merriweather, hopefully having those guys back sooner rather than later because the bullpen always need to add more arms there. One final shout-out, uh, the Tokyo Bros segment is now done and retired for, I guess, forever, so long. Uh, the Paralympics wrapped up 
yesterday, Canada finishing with 21 medals, five of those gold and, and a couple world records sprinkled in there. So a great showing from our athletes. Canada has been a big theme of this pod today, uh, which is not a bad thing, but sorry to our Southern listeners. You got to eat it sometimes. We are a very proud country and we love watching our, our individuals cook in their respective sports. Um, and yeah, that's going to wrap up the pod with the shout outs. Uh, happy Labor Day with a U to all of you out there. Uh, that's how we spell it up here in the theme of Canada. And thanks once again for listening. We'll keep on the pods one week, one at a time uh, for the next couple of weeks before we really dive into the sports beginning. Max, I'll throw it over to you for any last minute updates there. Uh, Djokovic. Nope, that's looking back to do. Yeah, sorry about all that extra patriotism thrown there in the end. Sports Next Door signing out.